We'll be in Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 26. When you're there, say amen. If you're online, when you're there, type amen. All right. In verse 26. All right, amen. Amen, amen. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and uh, justify that's right of the one who has faith in Jesus that's right con la mira de manifestar en este tiempo su justicia a fin de que él sea el justo y el que justifica al que es de la fe de Jesús amen, amen. and by the way uh, Hannah is offering uh, Spanish classes online um, so if you're interested in that, um, please see Hannah, or you can see me. I can get you in contact with her, um, but she is offering Spanish courses. All right, let us pray, and then we'll dive into God's word. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy, steadfast love, goodness. We thank you. Father, would you bless this time? Show yourself to be strong and mighty once again, as you always do. Uh, we pray that you would exercise your blessings over this room, continue to keep us and protect us. But right now, we pray that your word would do something magnificent in the inside of us. Father, that you would challenge us. And as you challenge us, Father, we pray that you would transform us. And as you transform us, we pray that we would take these transformed lives to transform the world um, and do what only you can do change people, and change the world. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. A guy by the name of Gary Hagen led a genocide investigation. He had to go to a massive grave site where 80,000 people were macheted one by one. He had to figure out who each person was. Literally, he had to figure out their name and count them. Gary quickly began to ask himself the big question, where was God? Sounds like a reasonable question after walking amongst such horrific, such an horrific event. Where God, where was God? But that question quickly turned into where God's people were. That question of where was God turned into where was God's people. Now I have a strange feeling this morning that this question remains relevant in our church and in our culture today. Can I ask you that same question in regards to the atrocities we see in our country today? Where are the people of God? Unfortunately, many find themselves arguing over another question. Should we or should we not be involved in social justice? I believe this is because we struggle in many cases to connect the dots from saving gospel to transformative gospel works. Let me say it again. I think that we struggle 
to connect the dots from saving from the saving gospel to the transformative gospel works. The gospel saves people, changes people, and those people are to change the world. I'll say it again. The gospel saves people, changes people, and those changed people are to change the world. But how? One of the ways justified people change the world is by caring for biblical social justice. Biblical social justice. I like to preach from this thought. Justification leads to justice. Let me say it again. Justification leads to justice. Now let me get a few stumbling blocks out of the way. I've been in these conversations. I know how it goes. So let me just clear up some things. Let me remove some hurdles so that you can hear me clear this morning. Social justice is a trendy word right now. It's everywhere. Everybody's talking about social justice. You go to the grocery store, everybody's talking about social justice. You go on Facebook, everybody's talking about social justice. You go on IG, everybody's talking about social justice. In fact, you go to your own dinner table and everybody's talking about social justice. It is a trendy word. And trendy words typically take on several meanings in a short period of time. That's the trouble with trendy words, is that trendy words take on several definitions. So here's the question. Do we uphold a social gospel? Do we uphold a social gospel? Absolutely not. If when someone says social gospel, they mean this. Our involvement in social justice is a means to salvation instead of a result of salvation. Let me say that again. If when you say social gospel, if you mean that social gospel is a means to salvation instead of a result of salvation, we disagree with you. A social gospel would argue we are justified by our involvement in social justice works. As if to say, we merit favor with God by protesting, helping the poor, participating in sex trafficking, fighting for the unborn. If it, and by the way, all of those are social issues, by the way. If anyone says you can merit right standing with God through your involvement in social justice, that person should be considered a heretic. That person should be considered a heretic, and I mean that with every word that I just said. Secondly, we do not fight for in or agree with every social injustice the world fights for. And let me say that again. I want to make sure that we're clear. We do not fight for, nor do we agree with every social injustice the world fights for or defines. In other words, let me put it plain, we don't fight for sin. We fight for human dignity without affirming all human lifestyles. Does that make sense? Are you with me this morning? As the church, we fight for all human dignity without affirming all human lifestyles. 
We stand for what is biblically right to stand for. We stand for whatever the Bible stands for. By the way, we do believe in the authoritative word of God. We do believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We do believe sola de scriptura. I believe that we believe that, that we preach that. We believe that we are to submit to the Bible. And Christians out of sight with the Bible, whether their political party decides with the Bible or not. Oh, y'all not going to talk to me this morning. That the Bible ought to dictate what you stand for and believe for. The Bible ought to have the final say-so. We stand for what is biblically right. Part of the issue is people like to lump people together if they agree on a certain issue and apparently failing to see that people can agree on the existence of a problem without agreeing on the appropriate solution. My argument today is a person who has been justified by faith in Christ alone. Let me say that again. My argument today, I want to say it real slow is a person who has been justified by faith in Christ alone. Okay, you guys did catch that, right? I did say in Christ alone, right? We are justified by faith in Christ alone. We never move from that. We never change that. There's nothing that can justify us outside of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to help the church have a more holistic viewing of the gospel and its implications. This is where we are falling short at. We're not seeing the gospel in its totality and all that it does. My argument today is a person who has been justified by faith in Christ alone will naturally, organically, inherently, whatever word you want to choose, not only care about biblical social justice, but will be involved in it. Social justice is tied to personal holiness. It is one of the transformative results of a changed heart. Now, let me bring you into some words here. Because we got to slow down and very carefully educate ourselves on some words here. If we're going to see the, the, the connection between justification and justice, we're going to have to understand two words, righteousness and justice. Okay, I'm going to take them one at a time. Justice and righteousness are words used throughout the Old Testament that occur within the same semantic domain and occur in relation to God, people, and society. The term justice or judgment are often translated from Mishaphat, which occurs 425 times in the Old Testament. And Mishaphat carries the nuance of being used most often in judicial settings, such as civil disputes in Israelite society. Then the term righteousness, or sometimes translated justice and innocence, are often translated from the Hebrew word Zedekah and its cousin Zedekiah which is together occurs 283 times throughout the Old Testament. These now carry the nuances of being used most often to describe something that reflects an, as, an, an accepted standard like God's law. So righteousness is used to describe a person 
Injustice is acting out or upholding what is right. The Bible doesn't separate righteous people from doing justice, nor does it, nor does it separate a righteous God from doing justice. The Bible doesn't separate who we are from what we should be doing. It doesn't separate righteousness and justice. Like you don't separate dirt from dry. You just can't do it. I mean, you can try, but if you separate any of those, you don't have dirt. You don't separate, separate water from wet. You got water, you got wet. There is no separating them. You cannot separate fire from heat. To have one is to have the other. You'll like this one. You can't separate stank from skunk. You, you just can't. I was just messing around with that one. I figured I'd throw a little jokey joke in there. Uh, <laughs> my bad, kid. I didn't, I didn't mean it. I didn't, I didn't mean it. And you cannot separate righteousness from justice. You can't not do it. It is impossible. To be one is to produce the other. So let's break this down. First and foremost, we must understand that God loves justice. God loves justice. We start our talk on justice where justice starts. Justice starts with God. If there is one sole reason we should care about justice, it is because God cares about justice. Oftentimes, we overshadow God's heart for justice with God's grace for sinners. We need to be clear that mercy wasn't the only motivating factor that sent Jesus to the cross, but justice as well. One of the beauties of the gospel is God is just and is always functioning justly. In the cross, we see that God loves justice. And Jesus, justice and order are redeemed. On the cross, justice and mercy kiss. They find agreement. They find the same home. They find a seat at the same table. We learned this early in Romans, did we not? Let me rehearse this again, church. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's Romans 3, 26. How can a holy God and judge allow sinners to go unchecked and unpunished for the things they have done? Here's a good relative example. The Rodney King case. Sometimes you got to talk about stuff that's not in the here and now. It's easier to people to listen. Imagine if God was the presiding judge over the Rodney King case. And God rendered the same judgment as a judge and jury in his case. How did people see the judge and jury after that? The judge, the judge and the entire criminal justice system were considered unjust and evil because a system that was supposed to uphold justice left four officers unchecked and unpunished for their crime. They committed against an unarmed black man. And I would say 
They are as evil as those who committed the crime because they didn't carry out justice against these criminals. My friends, without the death of Jesus, we essentially would have the same issue with God. We would essentially have the same issue with God. Without the death of Jesus, there would be no hope for justice. There would be no reason to trust in God because he would be wicked and you don't trust wicked people. The moral arc of the universe will be bending towards injustice instead of justice. And Paul writes this verse so we can understand that God is not like the American justice system or the system of this world. God is serious about justice. How serious is he, Pastor? I mean, really, really, how serious is God about justice? Come on. Come on, you're doing too much. God is serious about grace and mercy, and yes, he is. And I believe that with every fiber of my being, that God is serious about grace and mercy. And I love grace, and I love mercy. But how serious is God about justice? He is serious enough to send his son into the world and die for sin instead of just letting sin go. That's how serious, I mean, I mean, you, God is at the top of authority. There's no one over him. There's no one beyond him. He has final authority. He doesn't have to listen to anyone. He doesn't have to give account to anyone. He has the power and authority to just say, I don't care about your sin. I'm going to let it go. But he doesn't do that. Because if he did it, he wouldn't be righteous. And if our God is one thing, he's righteous. Amen? Upholding justice costs God everything. It cost him everything. There was no shortcuts. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. God knew no justice, no peace. Are you with me? God knew that without justice... There could be no peace. God was not going to be our friend without justice. God was not going to inhabit your worship without justice. God was not going to be your father without justice. No, no, no. God was going to be your enemy. God was going to be working against you. God was going to be the very person you were going to have to deal with when that last breath left your body and it was not going to be peaceful. It was going to be wrathful. If that was a word. Can you check that, uh, Angie, for me, look in the dictionary. God knew that without justice, there would be no peace. But Jesus died to uphold justice so that we would have peace with God. Jesus died to uphold justice so that there may be peace. For where there is justice, there can then be peace. And it was in Jesus that God was able to do this. This is why we sing the song, songs like, I know it was the blood for me. 
I thought I would have got a louder amen. Maybe the masks are covering you up and you really can't say as loud as you want to. But this is why we sing, I know it was the blood for me. I don't know about you, but I know for, as for, for me, it was because of the blood of Christ that I had peace with God. But the blood doesn't just remind me of the grace of God. Though I boast in that and I sing in that and it's worthy enough for me to do backflips in the sanctuary, the blood also reminds me of the justice of God. So that, so, so that when wrongdoing is done to me, I can stand flat-footed on the gospel knowing that a just God will one day carry out justice someday. But if the blood didn't speak to justice, when people wrong me, I have no hope in real justice ever coming. That's why the blood is so important both ways. But the gospel does more than teach us that God cares about justice. Yeah, it does. It does. The, 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 the gospel does more than teach us that God cares about justice. It ought to lead our hearts to care about justice. We shouldn't just leave justice with God, but God is calling his children to care about justice. God's children love justice. If God died because he loved justice, what kind of children would he raise? If God died... To uphold justice, what kind of children would he raise? I believe that he would raise children that love justice. Let us revisit our faith. We believe in the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, do we not? We cannot be made right with God any other way. Faith in Jesus' finished work justifies us, does it not? Why did Jesus need to justify us? Because we were bad people. Because we were bad people, we were unjust, and in a very real sense, we're still bad people apart from the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're not as nice as people think that you are. We were unjust. Our status before God was guilty because of our injustice. This is why the Bible says, none is righteous, no, not one. That's including your mama too. Every, nobody's righteous. I mean, I mean, your best person, your favorite person, the kindest person, the most loving person, the person that you hold to the highest standard is not righteous according to the scriptures. In other words, before salvation, we love injustice. In our BC, before Christ, we really loved injustice. It wasn't until our AD that we really started to love justice. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, Pastor, some people, before they're saved, they love justice. In fact, sometimes there's more non-believers out there doing things towards the fight of injustice than those who are saved. But just because you're doing things for justice doesn't mean that you love justice. Okay, you're not with me. The reason why that is is because what we have to understand is justice is not just a definition. It's not just a word. If you're going to love justice, you got to love Jesus because Jesus is the very essence of justice. And if you don't like Jesus, you really don't like justice. Are you with me this morning? Let that stick. We see injustice in us, and we ought to mourn. 
The first sign of love for justice in the child of God is this, church. It is repentance from our own injustice. Let me say that again. The first sign of love for justice in a child of God is repentance from our own injustice. If you do not have a sorrow for your own injustices, there is a woeful issue in regards to your salvation. You cannot try to save the world and skip past you not being saved yourself. You need to take very seriously the salvation of your own soul. And one of the things that you need to check is do you care about the injustices in your own life? We see, the, we need to see the injustice in us. We need to mourn and increasingly want more of God's righteousness. One of the beauties of the believer is that the believer is increasingly thirsting and hungering for God's righteousness. I'm not satisfied with the person I am today. I want to be more like Jesus tomorrow. I've not arrived. I still got issues. I'm starting at home first. I'm starting right here. And I want tomorrow to look more like Jesus than I did yesterday. And if that's not in you, you have fallen asleep towards your passion towards God. And pray that God would awaken those. David, after committing injustice, pins this. Created me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast what? Spirit within me. David, David is hungering. David is desiring. David is wanting more of God. He's wanting to grow more in God. He wants to grow more in righteousness. He's, he's, he's bent on growing and moving away from the injustices in his own soul. But our hearts don't stop with us. We love for others to be treated justly as well. Not only are we concerned and repentive of our own injustices, but as believers, we care about the mistreatment of others as well. The gospel is forever upgrading the Christian view of human life. Let me say that again. The gospel should be, ought to be, upgrading your view of humanity. This new and clean heart reminds me of a recent doctor's appointment. I tried a new eye doctor, y'all. Uh, I tried him out a couple weeks ago, and they had taken a, a few pictures of my eye. He used some words I didn't know, and I still don't know them. I tried to look them up so I can put them in my sermon, but I couldn't remember what he said. But essentially what they did was flash a light into my eye to take a picture. He said, you see that little bright white spot? I said, yes, sir, doc, I see it. He said, that tells me your eye is somewhat healthy, but because it's small, it tells me you are over 30 and your eyesight is going the other way. Let's just put it that way. The older you get, the worse, the worse your eyesight becomes. If I take this con these contacts out, I will not be able to see this script right now. When we get old, he says, they're not as bright. 
But if I take your 10-year-old son and take a picture of his eye, his whole eye was seeing back a picture of bright white. He said, it's the beauty of a newer eye. I said, thank you, Doc. That'll help me preach. You can keep the contacts. Before Jesus, the old man, the old eye was full of darkness, maybe a little white spot, but I didn't see justice as an eye because I was full of darkness. But now that we have been born again, now that we have a new eye, the brightness in us is increasing so that when justice shines its brightness in the soul of the believer, what justice should see reflected back at it is justice itself. How? Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus did what, church? He washed it white as snow. And the more you see rightly, the more you're going to care about and understand justice. The more we see rightly, the more we are sanctified, the more we are conformed into his image, the more we will see sin for what it is, the more we will see justice rightly. This is what Proverbs said, says, evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Let me read it again. Evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. That's Proverbs 28.5. How does that land on you? Evil men do not understand justice. How does that land on you? But those who seek the Lord understand justice completely. Those who seek Jesus understand justice completely. And we know this justice completely because it has become our justice. justice. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is justification. What does our world need? People who understand justice. And the very people who should understand justice is the church. What does the world need right now? It needs people who understand justice. The world needs people that understand justice. And the church is the one place they ought to be able to get that understanding. Which is why it is important that we pastors, we teachers, we elders begin to equip you to understand it from a biblical perspective. Who else to speak up at the job? Who else to speak up at the grocery store? Who else but a sanctified, transformed mind by the power of God? God wants to use the church. And they need it. Facebook feeds. Twitter streams have become a social war zone with articles, think pieces, and news updates as the ammunition fire between various ideologies. Christians are the only real hope, not because we're the smartest, 
or because we're the holiest or because we're the wisest or the most educated people. We understand justice because we know justice. Justice is a person and it's Jesus. And we need not try to understand justice through CNN and Fox, but through Jesus. The black church fought for justice on the basis of Christ. Slavery was eradicated on the basis of the supremacy of Christ. We appeal to Jesus. No, not these chains on the basis of Jesus. No, not segregated churches on the basis of Jesus. Jesus and his supremacy and his authority and his being has always been the argument for the church when it came to justice. As we fight for justice, please do not leave Jesus behind. And because the black church loved and knew him, they wanted people to be treated how he would treat them. How would he treat them? Brings me to my next point. God not only loved justice, but God is himself involved in justice. Okay. All right, y'all, we're moving from the head to the hands. Hold on to yourselves. God doesn't just care about justice. God is involved in justice. I'm going to show you. After saving his oppressed people from Egypt, the Israelites, watch what God does. God identifies himself to them as a God whose ways are just. We see this in Deuteronomy 32.4. A God who executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Deuteronomy 10.18. God is a God that looks out and cares for the marginalized, the poor, and the weak. He destroys Pharaoh's whole oppressive systemic system. He crushed the whole thing. He brought it all the way down. By the time God was done, his oppression and his, and his unjust system were dust. God did that. God did that. And then told his people that I'm a just God. You can have absolute confidence that no one who will be, who will be punished, that, that you, can, you can have absolute confidence that no one will be punished for a sin he or she did not commit. God's not going to punish people for sins that they did not commit because he's just. No sin will be punished in a way that is dis disproportionate to the offense. No one will escape from the justice of God. God knows all things. Nothing is hidden from him. No one intimidates him. No one has leverage against him. Power and wealth counts for nothing with him. That means you and I can have supreme confidence that God would bring absolute justice. Blessed is he who hope is the God of Jacob, who hope is the Lord his God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. 
He upholds the widow in the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Let me pause there because you should have got excited. You should have shouted because the Bible says that this just God who looks after the poor in the marginalized in execute justice and does good, this God will reign forever. I don't know about you, but I get nervous every year. I don't know who's going to reign over us, whether they'll be decent or undecent. But here's one thing that I do know. No matter what president come, no matter what government come, at the end of the day, there's a God that reigns on high who cannot be removed from his throne that will be there forever. And so though we walk through the darkness and though we go through hard times and though, in, though justice may not be ruling and reigning now, friends, you got hope that God cannot be removed, that sinners cannot remove him, that tyrants cannot remove him, that sin cannot remove him. And as long as God is on the throne, I got a reason to rejoice. I got a reason to praise. I know I'm teaching on justice, but you ought to have a praise break right now in your soul. You got to pause in the middle of it, not when you get out of it, but in the middle of it. You ought to say hallelujah, praise the Lord, that God will not be removed from his throne. What other hope do you have if God cannot be removed? Can I preach it the way that I feel it? What kept King going? God's on the throne. What kept the slaves going? God is on the throne. What ought to keep you going when you look at the news and you look at the polarization in our country? What ought to keep you going, Christian? You ought not be hopeless like the world. You ought to say that there is a God from Zion that's going to rule from generation to generation. You ought to type that on your Facebook page. You ought to type, type that on your Twitter account. And I'm not saying that to say that we shouldn't fight for justice. What I'm saying is, is that your soul needs a praise break. Every Anybody ever just got sick and tired instead of being sick and tired of fighting for justice? And sometimes you're laid on your bed and with tears coming down your eyes, you said, how long, oh Lord? And God reminded you that I am high and lifted up in those who wait on the Lord. He shall renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not get weary. He says for all generations. Friends, I want to assure you this morning. As a God that we serve. And his providence in and his sovereignty is very much involved in justice. But that's an easy pill to swallow, Brenda. Well, that, that, that's easy to praise. That's easy to clap about. It's easy the same way it's easy for you to say you love God and not love your neighbor. Yeah, 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 it's easy to do that. It's easy to say you love somebody you can't see. It's hard to love somebody who you can see. Just keep looking at me. Just keep looking at me. Facebook, keep looking at me. Don't type no names in the comment section. It's not enough to acknowledge that God loves justice and is involved in justice. God's children should be, be involved in justice. His redeemed people are commissioned to image their God who cares about the needs of the poor, the oppressed, and the outcast. And how can we not? 
we who were poor and could not pay God what we owed him. Righteousness was accredited to our sin-depleted accounts. How can we not stand for justice? We who were oppressed by the devil. We sinners have been made righteous before God by the shed blood of Jesus. We have peace with God by being justified by God. God went from chanting to us, no justice, no peace, to now justified, now peace. Why peace, God? Because we are now righteous. Watch this. Let me slow down. The gospel has now made us righteous, and those who are righteous are to be found fighting for justice. Okay? Remember at the beginning, you cannot separate those two. Those who have been made righteous are to be found fighting for justice because our righteous God fights for justice. You can't separate them. Justifying faith leads to justice. Righteousness and justice are inextricably linked in the heart of God. Do not let anyone tell you that God just cares about what you do on Sunday. No, God desires his people to uphold justice. That is, speak up for the poor. Speak up when black bodies are not getting justice. If we offer God our praise on Sunday and people our oppression on Monday, that worship is not acceptable to God. I love what Cornel West says. Justice is what love looks like public. Justice is what love looks like public. Watch this. Is it not this, the kind of fast I have chosen to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? This is Isaiah 58. And set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. What is God saying here? The people of Israel had concentrated themselves. They fasted, denied themselves food. Why? Because they wanted to hear from heaven. And after days of fasting, after days of going hungry, I don't know about you, but when I fast, I want some results. If I give up food, that's a big thing. Amen, somebody. And here it is. They gave up food. They didn't hear from God. They said, God, why aren't you responding? Well, God says, I'm glad that you gave up food, but the worship that you're giving me is not the worship that I require. Because when you fast, you still hold on in your sin. When you fast, you still ignore hungry people. When, 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 when you fast, you don't take off the chains of oppression. So God says that I don't want that kind of worship. I need to park my car here because I need, to, I need to preach this the way that you need to hear it, that you don't get to choose what kind of worship you're going to give God and think that God's going to accept it. God's going to send the worship back to your doorstep. It's kind of like not too long ago, me and my wife, we were at a restaurant. They brought out food that my wife didn't want. They did, y'all. It, it, she, 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 she's trying to do this vegetarian thing or whatever, and they had meat in it. What did she do with that food? 
she sent it back. That's like some of our worship. We want to open our mouths and sing to the Lord. We want to lift our hands and praise the Lord. But what we don't want to add to our worship is justice and walking rightly. And God says, that's not the meal that I asked for. Take it back and do it over again. God is not okay with the church, friends, raising their hands on Sunday and turning a blind eye towards injustice on Monday. But when we walk for justice, when we look out for the poor, when when we decide to take the extra means that we got to help our brothers and sisters, that does something in the soul of God. That is acceptable worship to God. Not only that, the Old Testament prophets display this same concern. It's all over the Bible. Isaiah and Amos passionately speak against social injustice within the community of God, of God's own people. By the way, you ought to read the prophets. You ought to read the small little books, the ones that we don't read. Y'all, yeah, y'all probably, if I told you to turn there, you probably don't know where it is. You need to go read those books as well, the whole counsel of God. The prophets were given heavy burdens of looking at our world and seeing what God sees, knowing that God knows in feelings what God and feel what God feels. It crushed them. They saw the rich people trying to get richer, looking the other way while poor people died. They assumed God was pleased with their lives and the world was getting along pretty well. But justice is a part of your worship. And when you stand for justice, it's like lifting your hands in worship on Sunday. Do you see the correlation? In the okay, y'all say passive, but that's the that's the old testament. And the God of the Old Testament is not like the God of the New Testament. You lying. You lying. You know, you, you know God is the same yesterday, today, and what? Some people just don't know how to read their Bible, so they don't make the correlation. But let me go ahead and bring it to you. Come here, Jesus. Come preach to God's people. In the New Testament, Jesus identifies himself with his followers who are poor, the imprisoned, the hungry, and the naked, and says that to neglect such people is to neglect him. Matthew 25, 31 through 46, if you want to look it up later. You see, God's people are called to help those who suffer injustice. Fighting for justice is no easy battle. It is a long, hard, and it will require tough days. Your feet will hurt. Your head will hurt. Your heart will ache. But the church is built for it. We have agape love in us. It is a love that doesn't lay down easy. Do we want to see people treated like Jesus would treat them? Yes, we do, friends. And that's not easy to want to see people treated the way that Jesus would treat them. But only justified people would want that. What does it look like then for the church today to speak to issues of social injustice in our backyard and in our communities? It's easy to talk about injustice way out there somewhere, but in our communities and in our own cities. How does it look like for Bethel Gary to stand up for justice here in our city? What does it look like for us to address justice issues such as abortion and human trafficking, along with discriminatory lending practices, redlining and housing, education, predatory lending, and discriminatory, and, and discriminatory pay? What does it look like for God's people embedded in today's society to address systemic racism, sexism, and classism? I'll answer that with a story. The hurricane with Denzel Washington as Reuben 
Hurricane Carter. It's based on the real life story of the Walter Waite boxer, difficult life in his 20 year battle to be set free from being wrongly imprisoned. One Brooklyn black teenage boy and three white Canadians became interested in Ruben's case and worked together to correct a miscarriage of justice. Once the young man convinced his Canadian friends, Terry, Sam, and Lisa, to commit to helping Reuben, they met with Reuben's lawyers. One lawyer invites them to access the room full of files concerning Reuben's case. The other lawyer congratulates them on their dedication to Reuben. He tells them that in the last 10 years, there have been a lot of people, great people, all well-intentioned, famous or not, boxers, singers, writers, actors, journalists, etc. A lot of brave people who gave their time and to some degree risk their reputation. People like you. And uh, people came and people went. And frankly, nobody lasts. Nobody stays the course. Nobody goes the distance because it's too tough. It's too slow and it's heartbreaking and it's too heartbreaking. Lisa firmly responds, with all due respect, Mr. Freeman, what you have to understand is that we're here. What you have to understand is that we're here. Well, not only are we here, we moved here. And we have every intention of staying here until Reuben is free. By the film end, their hard work and perseverance has uncovered new evidence that prove Reuben innocence in court. Bethel Gary doing justice takes hard work, dedication, and perseverance. I wish I had a Hammond B3 right now, Ken. I close it the way that I want to. These young people said, we are for real. No, look, we are for real. Friends, when it comes to justice, if you are for real, you just can't talk to talk. At some point, you got to walk to walk. I love what the lady, young lady says. We are here and we have moved here. All that'll preach all by itself. Come here, my Lord and Savior, who was serious about justice. He didn't just say he was coming. He actually Cain. Oh yeah, Thomas felt the nails in his hands and the holes in his hands and said that I believe that he is here. Friends, if we are going to be serious about justice, we got to learn from, these, from, from this black teenager. There was a few things that he did. Number one, he was dedicated to justice. Can I ask you a question? Are you dedicated? Let it sit for a minute. Are you dedicated? How did we know this young man was dedicated? You just can't say you're dedicated. You got to prove that you're dedicated. Okay, let me use something that I do in marriage counseling. When people come to my office and their marriage is on the rocks and they've been fighting and they've been arguing and someone says, he or she don't spend time with me. Or they say, they don't care about this marriage. 
And, of course, the person, as I always say, we all got a little lawyer inside of us. They rise up and say, I do care about that person. I do care about my spouse. I do love my spouse. I say, very well, then, let's see. I make them get up to a whiteboard, and I tell them, I want you to write down how much time you spent this week with your spouse. And then when you're done with that, I want you to tell me how much money you spent on your spouse. And when the time is low and the money is low, it is evidence that you don't care about this as much as you say that you do. Because you and I need some objective realities to measure our hearts by because we deceive ourselves. Are you serious about justice? Don't answer that so quickly. Number two, the young man educated himself on the injustices of the case. He read the case. How are you doing with educating yourself on injustice instead of just talking about injustice? We got to read up on it. We got to see where the hurts are. We got to see where the pains are. We got to understand these things before we make a step forward. We need to understand exactly what's going on in our society and in our world. Number three, I like what the young man's response is to the lawyer who is reasonably a little iffy after seeing people come and go, proving over time no dedication. He says, we are here. He says that we have moved here. I'm just throw this in for free, but I wish that people would actually move back to Gary. I know that's a shot. I know that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's one thing. And I'm not saying that moving to Gary is for everybody, but there ought to be some people who say that not only do they love this church, but if they love this community, is willing to be a part of this community, not when it's convenient for them, but to seriously and truly say that we are about the rebuilding of Gary so much so that we're going to become part of this community. That's what me and my wife have been talking about, and hopefully... We'll have a house here soon when it's done being built. I'm challenging you to do that. We call that incarnate ministry, that Jesus actually moved where we were. He came where we are. And no more of this play Christianity stuff, right? Let's all sing kumbaya and look like we got it together, but don't want to live next to one another. Or let's only talk about what's convenient to talk about. But at some point, if God is going to challenge our hearts, we got to meet you where you are, church. And to say at some point, you ought to care about the mother with the living in a leaky, moldy house and you've remodeled your kitchen five times. At some point, Christianity has to get real for you. And justice is one of the most tangible evidence. Number four. And lastly, he says, we're not going anywhere until he is free. Friends, fighting for justice is not easy. The moment you enter into the arena of justice, you are entering into a boxing match, and it will not be easy. People will talk about you. People will delete you from Facebook. It's going to cost you something. It cost Jesus his life. 
And no matter how loving you try to be, no matter how nice you try to be, remember Jesus died at the end, right? But he rose on the third day, but I'm not there yet. You know, Jesus was dedicated to us. Jesus came for us. If we are going to be dedicated to the poor, to the marginalized, to the, to, 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 to the woes in our country, it is going to cost you, church. It is going to cost you something. But this place is not our home. Heaven is our home. And if you have been justified, my argument to you today is that there ought to be a concern in your heart for justice. And if it is not, perhaps you are not righteous. Because righteousness and justice go hand in hand, and they have both been given to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to shout, I don't want you to celebrate. I want us to sit in quietness for a moment, and I want us to pray and ask God to search your heart on the topic such as this. So let's take a moment. Let's not rush. There's a lot of tension in our country. There's a lot of divide. We have to become slow to listen. I mean, slow to anger, slow to speak, and quick to listen. We as a church got to get through this together. We got difficult conversations on the way. Some of us are in different places. And I want, just want to put a little caveat here. That brothers and sisters who are trying, there ought to be grace in the middle of this. There ought to be patience with one another in the middle of this. God didn't cut you off. But if people are trying, we need to lean in together. 